Hello, and welcome to the second episode of Fixing Healthcare with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. I am one of your hosts, Jeremy Kaur. I am also the host of the popular New Books in Medicine podcast and work for the healthcare revenue cycle firm Metarev. I have with me my co-host, Dr. Robert Pearl. Robert is the former CEO of the Permanente Group, the largest physician group in the United States, responsible for caring for Kaiser Permanente members on both the East and West Coast. He is a Forbes contributor, a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business, and author of the best-selling Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our monthly podcast. It's aimed at addressing the failures of the current American healthcare system and finding solutions to make it once again the best in the world. We are very excited you have chosen to join us in this quest. For 40 years, our nation's political and medical leaders have talked about fixing the American healthcare system. No one has succeeded yet. We need a hero. Our guests are the top leaders and thinkers in healthcare. The show's format is simple. Our guests will have 10 minutes to present their roadmap for fixing American healthcare's biggest problems, and I will probe deeply based on my experience as a physician and healthcare CEO. I'll scrutinize the plan, posing questions that challenge our guests and helping our listeners separate real solutions from hype. Then Jeremy will dive in from the patient's perspective, ensuring their concerns are addressed, making certain the concepts are clear for listeners, and helping to translate any medical jargon we may have used into normal conversational language. Unlike many other healthcare shows, we are not interested in hearing about a pilot project that worked in one location or a new device that a company simply wants to promote. We are searching for a truly disruptive change, not just a few minor tweaks. Our guest today is Dr. Haley Fisher-Wright. Over the past 25 years, Dr. Fisher-Wright has been a practicing pediatrician, the owner of medical practices, the leader of a large physician group, a hospital executive, a chief medical officer, a consultant on culture and innovation, the wife of a cancer survivor, and the daughter of a chronically ill father. She is the author of the national best-selling books, Back to Balance and Tribal Leadership, and is the recipient of multiple national awards for leadership in healthcare. Since 2015, she has been the president and CEO of the Medical Group Management Association, Through its members, MGMA represents close to 50% of the healthcare delivered in practices across the United States. Inspired by her personal experiences and in her role with MGMA, she works to elevate the important issues and the best ideas from the front line of medicine, from the people responsible for delivering healthcare across the country. These are the ideas she believes that can bring the art, science, and business of medicine into balance and transform healthcare in America. Haley, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Jeremy and Dr. Pearl. Haley, consider yourself an applicant for the job of leader of American healthcare. You're being hired due to your experience and your reputation as a visionary and an innovator. You're being hired because after decades of talking about the unaffordability of healthcare and nearly 20 years of lamenting lacking quality and over 100,000 deaths nationally each year, from preventable medical error, our country's ready to make a major change. As I said to the audience, we're not interested in small incremental fixes or simply trade-offs among cost, quality, and service. But instead, we believe that disruption is possible, and you are the right person to make it happen. The deliverables are significant in size and scope, but unless we can achieve this level of improvement, we don't believe 
that over the next five to 10 years, the American people will be willing to move forward. We'd like you to provide a plan to achieve the following. One, increase life expectancy in the US from last amongst the 11 most industrialized nations to at least the middle of the pack. Two, increase quality outcomes as publicly reported by organizations like the National Committee for Quality Assurance, the NCQA, and make sure it's by at least 20%. Three, decrease the cost of care by 20% on federally reported data. Four, improve service and convenience by 20% on patient reported satisfaction. And five, improve professional satisfaction for clinicians by 20% on physician satisfaction surveys. Haley, you'll have 10 minutes or so to outline the system of healthcare you believe is capable of achieving all of these outcomes and the steps you will take in this role to get there. We can't wait to hear your plan. Thank you, Robbie. You know, it's hard for me to talk about being the leader of American healthcare without separating out the personal with the national. So from a personal standpoint, I didn't have one moment where I knew healthcare was broken. Instead, it was a series of personal experiences that brought the deeper problems into the light. The day that I watched my dad get poked again and again for a spinal tap by residents and interns who didn't speak to him or even look him in the eye until it was my turn to poke him. From the moment I realized that my husband and I could possibly lose our home because of crushing medical bills after his cancer surgery, the night my mother convinced herself that she had ALS by Googling her symptoms and then double-checking it with WebMD. The 24 hours after we told my dad had pancreatic cancer because his test results weren't obvious in his EHR. The problem with talking about all these underlying problems is that we lose sight of what healthcare is. One human trying to help another get and stay healthy. And that's why most policy conversations about healthcare end with people walking out of the room saying, well, when I saw my doctor last week, healthcare is human, personal, and intensely local. And yet we take an army of problem solvers and innovators and prevent them daily from making decisions that could dramatically transform healthcare. And I'm talking about every provider, leader, clinician, staff member working in a medical practice, and to get to your point, the patients they serve. In my design of the future of healthcare, I'm choosing to ignore everything at the top and start with all the experience and brilliance and passion, and most importantly, the common sense that I see in medical practices every day. In fact, I'm recommending that we do the exact opposite of what we're currently doing. And I think that would actually help to solve most of our problems. But let's do it in this framework with three fundamental questions. First, I'd ask, do we really know what we want out of healthcare? Now, Robbie, you gave me the task of five questions and gave me numbers around it. But the interesting thing is, while we keep talking about cost, quality, and satisfaction, I mean, let's be honest, we are all obsessed with the triple slash quadruple aim. Is that really, though, what patients want, meaning every single one of us? Would that be what I tell you I personally want? 
Or do we, as policymakers and professionals, use it as surrogates because we struggle to deliver what patients really want to be healthy and trust in all the institutions that are supposed to take care of them? And that includes not just the practices and hospitals, but also the insurance companies, the policymakers, and every other player in the system. To fulfill that desire, though, we have to do a critical second thing. Treat the whole person and not just the disease. And we have some amazing practices in the country that are pushing really hard for that idea. And Robbie, you mentioned not just one practice, but let's take a look at systems where I should say groups of practices like Iora Health. Or let's take a look at Methodist and their system in Nebraska or the Mayo Care system. They are doing it by focusing on outcomes and not just the preconceived notion of almighty processes to get to those outcomes. And if all we're doing is mechanically treating one disease after another, then the protocols and process measures from on high and the AI-driven decision that we all need, we have it all here, right? All we have to do is execute on what we've been protocol delegated to do, and then we'll fix everything, right? Well, I think that's really what the idea of what we need to do in healthcare right now is. But the problem is that none of those tools, and that's all they are, tools, would help someone on the front line figure out how to solve a transportation issue for a patient or try to help a patient who's struggling to take their medication regularly. Or from my personal experience, a population of people who cannot afford to purchase their medications. If we want healthy populations and we want to be healthy ourselves, people on the front line need the flexibility to focus on the person in front of them and make decisions that are best for them. And that feeds into the third piece of the puzzle. I believe that empowered partnerships in which the right people have the right amount of control over the right decisions are crucial to building a culture of excellence in the whole industry. If we all trust that every other player in the industry is making decisions with the same goals in mind, we'll be more collaborative in decision-making and contributing to that progress. And we'll be more willing to share our ideas far and wide. We need that trust though. And right now we definitely don't have it. In fact, it reminds me of a story of when I was giving a speech or I was actually asked to be a panelist at the University of Miami conference called the Business of Care. And what was really interesting is myself, the CEO of the American Medical Association, the CEO of the American Hospital Association, the CEO of the American Nurse Executive, and the CEO of the Healthcare Finance Association. An interesting thing is we all fundamentally agreed on what our goals are. And they're very much, Robbie, what you outlined, increase life expectancy, increase quality outcomes, decrease costs, make service a priority, and make our doctors happier. And yet we don't work together to get aligned on their goals. I think we should revisit a fundamental talk to both you and I, Robbie, when we were medical students. Primo non nocerum. First, do no harm. It's essential to delivering good and effective care, to helping people be healthy. Every single one of us is a part of the system that helps deliver that care. So let's all be held to that standard. Again, I'm talking about not just providers and practices, but also insurance executives, pharmaceutical companies, regulators, financial middlemen, every single one of us. And finally, 
What empowered partnerships can help eliminate is that tendency to hunt for silver bullets or so-called disruptive ideas. Because when you have excellence, you don't need disruption. Excellence happens through a series of transformative ideas paired with steady progress on problems directly in front of us. I think the masters of the mindset are people like the leaders at Virginia Mason, but most in this industry seem to have abandoned the common sense problem solving. There are so many solvable problems we keep talking about in practice, to your point, for the last 40 years, and yet we keep making many of them worse. Two of the biggest are administrative complexity and regulatory burden. Solve them and you rapidly save hundreds of billions of dollars, reduce burnout, improve frontline satisfaction, and free up amazing time and resources that actually could be used to improve life expectancy and improve the actual health of people leading to quality outcomes. Since 2011, just the direct costs for managing claim billing and collections for primary care practices have increased by 74%, which is ironic since we're supposedly at a time where technology and electronic transactions are supposed to be making everything more efficient. A journal article put the total cost of billing and claims at $471 billion in 2012. If we save just 50% of us, that gets us our decrease in costs that you're pushing for, Robbie. A recent AMA survey showed that practices spend 14.6 hours per physician per week on prior authorizations. If I gave any physician 14.6 hours per week, I guarantee you we would increase life expectancy and improve quality outcomes. A researcher using MGMA data found that practices spend $40,000 per physician per year to track and report quality measures, not to navigate them, not to improve them, but just to report. That number alone ended up being $36 billion a year. So the solutions exist, and they're actually right in front of us. With a little collaboration and common sense, they could be executed on in the next 18 to 24 months. And these simple things that are just right in front of us would have dramatic and lasting effects on our movement towards better outcomes. Now, here's the thing. They aren't sexy and they do seem to be complex. And I've really thought hard about it in preparing for this podcast. And I thought, well, maybe I could ask Margot Robbie, like she did in the big short, to sit in a bubble bath and explain it to everybody. And then we could get people to listen. I mean, it did work for that movie, but I'm not sure it would work for healthcare. In short, everybody in healthcare needs to be accountable to contributing to the solutions for solvable problems. Everybody should be accountable to our steady progress towards excellence. Again, we've made a commitment as physicians to do no harm because not moving forward is no longer an option. Thank you very much, Haley. And first, let me express my sympathies uh, about your dad. As you know, my dad died from a medical error, and when you experience types of failures of the American healthcare system directly, it motivates people like you and me, and I suspect quite a number of the listeners. Let me also, though, touch on something else you said, which is the issue of the bankruptcy that you uh, almost experienced, despite having insurance, and despite being a very knowledgeable physician, practicing physician and physician leader, and really hone in on the, on a key question, which is, 
Why do you believe that the people still embrace, the insurance companies still embrace a dysfunctional system requiring the type of piecemeal FIFA service billing and documentation? Why do they do it if it doesn't work? I think you touch on a really important question there, Robbie. And I think we're seeing the intersection now of where consumerism is going to cause a change. I think in the last, when healthcare was instituted in the 1970s, really up until about mid, uh, I would say 2008 to 2012, in a certain way, insurance given to people as part of their employment packages, you made an intuitive assumption that it'll just be paid for. And so it was almost, if you will, an entitlement program where people viewed, I go to my healthcare and it's covered. So there was somewhat of a disconnect of the consumer's responsibility and the role for asking the right questions and being informed as far as the products they were receiving. Then all of a sudden, the cost started to skyrocket and more of that burden was shifted to the consumer. So I actually think the question you're asking, why do we accept it? I, what I'm going to say is I think we accepted it because it was like boiling the frog. Things subtly shifted and the water just got hotter and hotter. But starting really, I would say, over the last three years, as the Accountable Care Act came into place, I think people are becoming more aware of what their roles, responsibilities, and starting to become more informed consumers. I actually had a really interesting conversation with my dad uh, at lunch on Saturday where he was talking about he's on Medicare, that his co-pays for drugs were $400, and that what he had to do, how he was making decisions, how he was going to choose what Medicare plan was based on his medication co-pays, and that is not a conversation we could have had five years ago. And why do you think the insurance companies continue to do this if it's so costly? You know, I think that, so um, in full candor, I work with several insurance companies to really talk about how do we um, become better care deliverers. And this is what I meant in my opening statement, that we have to align the incentives. I don't tend to view any of the participants in the healthcare system as, I don't see a villain. I think we all function with our true role. The role of an insurance company, uh, particularly a publicly traded insurance company, is to generate shareholder value. From a healthcare perspective, we want to they uh, take care of people and make them healthy. So how do we align those incentives so that we both win in that conversation? And I think that's where that intersection of provider and patient occur. So um, I think where it, what I see from an insurance standpoint, and I know from the larger health insurers, we have conversations with them about how do we approach this in a way to engage the physician and the patient in a more effective way to get to your point, increase our quality of outcomes and decrease our costs. So I don't know any group of individuals more motivated, more compassionate than physicians uh, dedicated, dedicated their entire life to training. And yet when we look at performance, things yeah. like gaps in prevention, colon cancer, 50% of the patients who die in the United States die unnecessarily because they don't get properly screened 
or hand washing. A third of the time, doctors go from room to room, they don't wash their hands, or blood pressure control, only 55% of the time do we achieve it across the United States. Again, let me ask you the same question. Why do you think physicians' performance is, I'll call it, lacking that which I'll say the best groups in the United States are able to achieve? Yeah, I actually think that's that great question. I think it is uh, really what we're talking about is that physicians are overloaded. Um, and so, and I point to it in the statement I made, when you're spending 14.6 hours a week as a physician getting a prior authorization, when you're spending two hours on the computer for every hour you spend with a patient, and that you're being measured, rewarded, and compensated really on your productivity that is an engagement with a, a computer platform. I think these common sense, wash your hands, do preventive care, things get missed. Because in a certain way, this system has tipped to, to really engaging our providers into documentation as opposed to prevision of care. And I think that's really what is causing a lot of dissatisfaction with providers. But I also think we are seeing the quality outcomes suffer from that as well. The question I would next pose to you is, if we're going to have each person individually take action, what mm -hmm. does that say about the concepts that say, in the quality arena, people say it's not individuals who are the problem, it's the system. How do we move from everyone having that personal ability to do that, which they feel is best for a specific patient, to getting the best total outcomes by creating a system of care delivery? Oh, so, <laughs> I, Robbie, I think uh, I told you I was going to be a disruptor here. I, I don't believe we have a system of care. I think we have an industry, not a system. I don't think our healthcare, and I'm using air quotes here, uh, system was ever set up to be a system. So I'm going to push against saying that. What I can say is I think we can generate systems of care locally, not necessarily nationally. And what you talk about as far as you know, taking what is best-in-class evidence-based medicine and then having point-of-contact physician, provider, in, uh, physician and, excuse me, a patient in a room using that evidence-based medicine to act as a framework for decisions, but then being able to pull in all those pieces that at this point in time, so this is um, August of 2018, there is no AI system in the United States that I'm aware of that can take all the multiple factors that feed into the social determinants of health, healthcare, et cetera, into one standardized care regimen. So that's where um, we can use the data, use the AI, and use those care pathways as the architecture and framework, and then use our humanity uh, to make the best decisions. And I think that's how you set up effective systems of care. If we're going to move from a fee-for-service system to what I'll presume is some variant of capitation in the model you're yeah. describing, it's going to require that we change how we pay people for what we yeah. pay them, for what we value. How's that going to happen? Who's going to make the choices? In my system of the future, uh, we are going to end up moving to a variant of capitation where there's risk involved. 
But the risk is not just borne by the physician. It's borne by everybody in the system. And that's where the one partner that we haven't substantively engaged, which is the patient, becomes a key player. And that's what I push towards as empowered partnerships. What we see in those type of capitation systems where the consumer becomes the engaged partner is that consumers will basically take away that what we see right now in our current iteration of capitation, where we view that that it's the provider's responsibility to be an enforcer and actually self-govern themselves because they have skin in the game. They have the finances in the game. They have their outcomes in the game. Um, And so that's where I think those variations in capitation are going to move forward. Fee-for-service, I think, um, it's really interesting. We talk all about, and by we, I mean nationally, we talk about uh, getting rid of fee-for-service, moving towards uh, value-based care. But to your point, Robbie, no one's really clarified what value-based care looks like. And yet I can tell you from an MGMA data standpoint, if we take a look at major compensation drivers across the United States, it's still fundamentally fee-for-service. What are your thoughts on if there's any danger around if the the payers be the one that end up defining value? The interesting thing is with the rise of consumerism and with more dollars for care being pushed over to the consumer, I actually think the yellow zone, the warning area is that we have consumers deciding what quality of care is more than the payers. And I think that's where we as a system really have not done a good job anticipating the rise of consumerism and really navigating how we can create effective partnerships and influence our patients in a successful way to become healthier. I think that the the role of the payer will diminish as more of that cost shifts to the patient. So let me ask you about five related but separate pieces. The first one I want to ask you about is about end-of-life and palliative care. Uh, Senator McCain, as you know, died this week. We're recording the uh, program. I wrote a piece for Forbes because I was really shocked when the media started talking about him giving up by not having another round of chemotherapy. How are we going to bring this crucial conversation, all the dollars that we spend the end of life that add no value? How do you see that happening in this system you're describing? Oh, very much. Uh, so I think it's a great and timely example. Very much. Uh, I'm going to draw my experience when I was a chief medical officer, and I was actually tasked with putting in a palliative care service line into the hospital. And what was really interesting to me as I went on that journey is how uncomfortable physicians are, and it, it, this points directly to the McCain conversation, in engaging in palliative care um, and really doing education around it, why patients have much higher satisfaction getting back to one of the goals when palliative care is instituted. And really, I think it's going to be, to succinctly answer your question, it's going to be the patient that drives to those conversations. Because as physicians, we view death as the competitor. And if we and I'm going to use, uh, allow our patients to die we've lost. Instead, from a consumer-driven conversation, having those conversations of what is your expectation? What do you want your end of the life to be? 
Uh, how can we make you comfortable? Let's set all that up. So it's a much different focus on um, what the outcome is. And you know, once again, I'm going to poke on not what the process is. The process is we want to do everything possible versus the outcome. Here's what I want at the end of my life. And I think that uh, Senator McCain was, I think, a great role model in having those conversations and choosing the end of life on his terms. And that dignity uh, we need to bring to our patients in the future. I agree completely. Let me ask you, you know, I, you mentioned before all the measures people have. I remember a conversation I had with a physician and I said, why do we have 80 <laughs> measures in primary care? And his response, because that's all the rows there are in an Excel spreadsheet. The question <laughs> for you is, how are we going to ensure <laughs> how, that how insightful <laughs> quality? You know, um, so uh, for the audience, a um, little education. Currently, if you take the three major health insurers plus Medicare, for a primary care physician, there are over 4,600 reported necessary reported quality measures to ensure full reimbursement if you're a provider in practice. Of that, probably, so this is, this is best guess, not uh, qualified data, probably 60% of them are redundant. So when we take a look at data, I'll use diabetes data. The American Academy of Family Practice has guidelines. The American College of Surgeons has guidelines. The American Society of Endocrinologists has guidelines. Cigna has guidelines. Uh, United Healthcare has guidelines. And CMS has guidelines. So as you look across all those, what's really interesting to me is defining what is successful treatment of diabetes and then working forward, how do you achieve those goals? Good advocate is that we actually need to determine what quality is using, once again, evidence-based medicine and setting a guideline. But then we have to, as providers, define what quality is for individual patients in front of us. And some of that is actually having the conversations with our patients um, in regards to what defines quality. And because they are going to be the financial stakeholder, recognizing that if they choose not to participate with these guidelines, they may not receive medical care for you know, the, the type of medical care that they have traditionally received for doing that. Quality is such a bucket because it has become the sole, the, these little measures become the surrogate measure of actual delivery of care, the quality that's delivered care. And they are, they are multiple studies have shown that they are not necessarily directly related to cost efficiency, patient satisfaction, physician satisfaction, in a lot of ways, they actually act as barriers. So I think it's it's really honing down on what are the quality measures that actually matter and committing to that, and then moving forward on achieving those quality goals. Third question has to do with what I see to be the most challenging part of the total healthcare, at least cost uh, conundrum, and that's pharmacy, where we see the cost rising more rapidly than anything else, so going up at double digits rather than low single digits. Uh, many of the drugs that are being sold and advertised are ones that don't add much added value. And as you probably saw this week, someone estimated that if all the drugs that simply combined two other drugs didn't add anything else except combining two pills were in place, a Medicare could save billions of dollars each year. 
how should we approach the pharmaceutical industry to get it to align with the other things you're describing? Absolutely. It's really interesting to me, the, the business model of pharmaceuticals. Um, so the cynic in me, and I actually, I'll just throw this out there to um, basically put gasoline on a fire would say the best way to deal with this is, to t- is election campaign reform. But we'll just take that offline and say probably one of the best ways to take a look at navigating in the pharmaceutical costs is to really move from a healthcare finance policy, which is what we're doing right now, to healthcare policy. Once we get really clear on what our goals are from uh, providing healthcare with individuals, then I think that we're going to have to have those crucial conversations with pharmaceutical companies and define what we are and aren't paying for. Right now, we see players such as the insurance companies, um, Intermountain Healthcare, Amazon are all trying to take out the intermediaries in the pharmaceutical supply chain, which will decrease costs, but it's only one more step till they start getting into the pharmacy business themselves. Um, One of the things that I, in preparing for this talk, I found out is that even our government, unlike Kaiser, Kaiser and Permanente will go to, as you're well aware, Robbie, will go to a pharmaceutical and say, this one drug and we want the best price because you're pro- providing care for a large number of people. Our government doesn't do that. Uh, our government actually pays multiple different prices for drugs, depending on if you are in the VA system, if you're in the military, or if you are part of Medicare. And that just seems somewhat insane to me. Uh, if you're actually purchasing drugs from one pharmaceutical company that you're paying multiple different prices. So I, I think it starts with asking ourselves what we want. We want good health. And then we work backwards into how do we provide that? And then we basically leverage down the influence of pharmaceutical companies. And, and we do that by being smart business people. And by saying, if I'm your number one uh, customer, this is what, you know, this is what we're going to pay. And then we have to bring people into line. Conversely, uh, I had the opportunity to hear one of the former administrators of CMS talk about one of the challenges we have is that we have new drugs that advertise, uh, and so we're going direct to consumer uh, advertising. And I am actually a big advocate in getting rid of that advertising because I think it creates a false perception of what quality is, what the need is, and actually drives some of those costs way up. I think one of the, the 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 misconceptions out there, and even an argument that, that I've heard, is that part of the reason so much money goes into big pharma is that it goes into R and D for new and better drugs. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, it's really hard to take a look at the profitability of pharmaceutical companies and to really take that argument very seriously. Let me ask you next about technology which I believe offers tremendous possibility. I've spoken about the possibility of uh, video replacing a third of what we do in the offices, and yet surveys say that physicians use telehealth uh, certainly under 5% across this country, and that quite a number of physicians may not be particularly interested or even believe in the possibility of providing care over a a not-in-person type encounter. What are your thoughts on technology and how do we make sure that we provide the technology that patients want? Well, I think so. I'm a big fan of technology in a way completely different than we've ever used it in healthcare. 
And I don't think we can talk about technology and providers in the same breath without really declaring the epic failure that EHRs have been. EHRs have been a huge failure with physicians because they're really designed, in this day and age, designed from a business standpoint to filter into administrative and financial systems and not effectively to deliver care. So when we use that, and it was forced on physicians in a certain way against their will, it was really uh, crucial for um, under meaningful use to get paid for. And so when we do that to physicians, when we take away their independence and autonomy, and we use healthcare technology, which up to this point in time is really financial and administrative, we are not leveraging technology for its best and highest use. The best and highest use of technology, and Robbie, I think you and I agree on this from what I've um, read about what you've written, is to really allow the physician to be at the top of their license and spend more time engaging in the meaningful um, relationship and, and really pushing for high quality care. That's where technology has its highest and best purpose. And so what we need to do is almost give, well, I think what we need to do is give physicians back autonomy and then really redesign our technological systems from the end user standpoint. I basically, it was kind of funny, I was talking to someone and they said, we we have the Microsoft Windows XP version of healthcare. And really what everyone's looking for is a MacBook Pro. We're looking for something anyone can do. You open it up, you just you just use it to be productive. And that's not how technology has shown up for providers yet. But as providers, and this isn't a point um, for, for us as providers, if we refuse to engage in systems that are purely designed from administrative and financial standpoint and demand systems that allow us to leverage technology to be better physicians, I think it'll be hugely successful and live up to the potential and promise we've been talking about for the last 25 years. We definitely agree. The challenge, of course, will be getting the manufacturers of today's systems to open their APIs, the application processing interfaces, because once that was there, then uh, third-party developers could step in and create what you're describing. But without that, and I think the companies are resistant to doing that because of the fear that people will move to a new company rather than their company, and they want to hold on to the patients that they have. That's a much longer conversation. They move to the last question. Maybe in some ways the most significant, particularly in your role in MGMA, is, at least from my perspective, we have an imbalance in the healthcare system. Too many specialists, not enough primary care. Some communities have too many cardiologists, too few orthopedists, vice versa. Too many hospitals, redundant systems, redundant services. How can we right-size the American healthcare system? How is it going to happen? Who's going to do it? And how are we going to handle the fact that there will be both winners and losers as a consequence of the decisions that are made? Well, I, so I think this is a really complex question. And I don't think it's about coming up with, for every 100,000 people, we need 10 GI doctors, three CT surgeons, four neurosurgeons. And I, and I think saying that there's a right-size solution is somewhat indulging our appetites for a silver bullet. So, so I think a way to approach this is to bring it down to the front line or care. We agree the system is out of balance, but I don't think we know what the right number of specialists are because in all fairness, we're not leveraging them to do the right level of work. And we're focused on a disease 
system and not a well care system. What we can focus on, and I think that this underlies the number of specialists we have, is we, as a healthcare industry, we focused on a capitalistic market approach. And I'll just put it out there. I became a pediatrician and practiced for 19 years. I had classmates that became GI doctors. Candidly, the GI doctors in my class made much better business decisions than I did. And, and let me put this way, as the CEO of MGMA, where we define, we put out the survey that talks about what physicians get compensated. I can tell you that with a significant force of data behind me. We haven't addressed the issue of medical students who graduate with debt. And so it's really hard for me to engage in a conversation about number of specialists to really talk about the cost of medical education. 70% of people graduate from medical school owing more than $300,000, and they have a delayed start to their career. And one of the things I write about in Back to Balance is I saw a compelling analysis when I was writing that, that basically, given the fact that they invest in their education and have a late start, Really, doctors end up making about the same hourly rate as teachers if you go into primary care. To, to really engage in the question of the proper number of specialists, we have to change the economics of our medical education, and we can't expect medical students who have to service the debt that they undertake to change their personal economic decisions to align with what we think our goals as a society are. So I think that that question actually has to be answered before we get into the total number of specialists. We could go on for hours. We'll turn it over to Jeremy to bring the point of view of the patient into the conversation. In the plan you outlined earlier in the episode, you mentioned triple and quadruple aim. Can you please explain that for our listeners? Sure. The, the Institute of Medicine put out a report early 2000s that really talked about how much waste there was in healthcare. They basically identified that first study that there was about 30% of what we spend in healthcare is wasted money. So to combat that waste, uh, one of the techniques that was developed for healthcare providers was this band around what we call the triple aim. And the triple aim is a philosophy where you want to increase quality of care, decrease cost of care, increase patient satisfaction. That's the triple aim. As more and more research has come out showing, really demonstrating that physicians are dissatisfied, we've moved into the quadruple aim where we add in their physician satisfaction. So every conference over the last five years I've attended, uh, regardless of what the conversation has been, ultimately leads back to the triple aim. How do we get back to the triple aim? Cost, quality, and satisfaction. You talked about the cost of attending medical school. What are your thoughts on what NYU announced in regards to the free medical school tuition? So 60% of me says finally, and 40% of me, and that's the cynic in me, says if we only have one medical school who does that, we're actually going to ultimately defeat our goals because if that's only one medical school who decides to do that, then that medical school will ultimately attract the most competitive, the brightest, the best. And these are, you know, we're smart. You know, doctors are smart. We'll say, yes, we want to go into primary care. That's why we're choosing to go to NYU. And yet, as driven, successful people, most likely we're going to actually reinforce more specialists going out, out of that class, ultimately, 
than we would have thought. And I think that's one of the challenges of a lot of the things we do in healthcare is that we don't anticipate the undesired consequences. Earlier in the episode, you talked about the administrative burden that physicians are facing. This has been a big part of the reason for reduced face time with a primary care physician, reduced eye contact, uh, reduced relationship. And this is a relationship that patients really value. Do you have any advice for patients who want to take back their primary care visits and ensure that they're getting the, the face time and the trusted relationship that they value so much? A statistic that I write about is that every primary care visit has on average 800 clicks on a keyboard. So as a patient, one of the things that you can do, and I say it tongue in cheek and with half a grin, is to say, my eyes are here. I think we really have to push our providers who have, in a certain way, as I mentioned earlier, boiled the frog, had this technology and the reporting issues buried on top of them, really demand that we have an actual interaction eye to eye with a physician while we're in their office and vote with our feet. If we can't get our physician to meaningfully engage with us, then we need to be able to find a new physician. In turn, that should drive our physicians to find better technological solutions for reporting than they currently have now. So I think that actually is where the front line can influence up into this to into the industry more so than we've seen that before. Well, Haley, we have taken up a lot of your time today. Can you please provide a closing statement with takeaways for both industry leaders and for the average healthcare consumer? You may also ask them to follow you on your social media channels. Sure. So um, I would like to encourage people to follow me at uh, at drhaley.com. But what I really want to do is to leave this conversation with a message of empowerment and optimism. What can we do as practice leaders, providers, and patients? Well, you know, as I've talked about for the last hour, uh, we've been sold a victim mentality, but it's a myth. In fact, we are healthcare. And without all of us, there is no healthcare. Our entire $3.7 trillion healthcare system, ironically, is really built on top of what happens with a patient and a provider in an office. So if you're a provider or practice leader, the only way to battle the things that cause dissatisfaction and burnout, believe it or not, is to become more engaged. You are not at the whims of an industry that doesn't care about you or the patients you serve. You are empowered, especially within your practice, but also outside of it, to make the daily choices to improve your professional life, improve your ability to do the work you want to do and how you do it. Small changes can and do yield a lot of positive outcomes. For patients, as overwhelming as the demands of the healthcare system can seem, you have the ability to also become an empowered partner. In fact, it's a requirement in our current system and will be even more important in the future. The role the medical practice once played in patients' lives has changed. So educate yourself on the essential issues affecting healthcare. Learn what's happened behind the curtain. That knowledge will help you make a better decision and have a much better experience. 
and be a better advocate for the kind of care you want. Haley, thank you again for being on the show today. When I was the CEO in Kaiser Permanente, I had a motto that said, innovate locally and learn regionally. You've taken it up to another notch to innovate locally and learn nationally. Like you, I am optimistic of what could happen in the future. I can't promise you that your approach and recommendations will be the ones our nation embraces. But for anyone who thought that solutions didn't exist, you have proved them wrong. And this was a lot of fun. Thank you, Dr. Pearl. And thank you, Jeremy, for the opportunity to participate in this podcast. Next month, our guest will be Dr. David Feinberg, the president and CEO of Geisinger Health. He is also the author of Proven Care, How to Deliver Value-Based Healthcare the Geisinger Way. Dr. Feinberg is considered to be one of the most innovative and forward-thinking leaders in healthcare. We are looking forward to having him on the show. To our listeners, please subscribe to Fixing Healthcare on iTunes or other podcast software. If you like the show, please rate the show five stars and leave a review. Visit our website, www.fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter at FixingHC, that stands for Healthcare Podcast. You can find our personal LinkedIn and Twitter accounts on the website. For additional information on other healthcare topics, you can check out my website, Dr. Robert Pearl, drrobertpearlmd.com. We hope you enjoyed this podcast, and we'll tell your friends and colleagues about it. Together, we can make American healthcare the best in the world. Thank you for listening to Fixing Healthcare with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. Have a great day.